Well, everyone, if you would uh, grab your Bible, turn, I think it's page 1004. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, and we're going to start in verse 11. In last week's sermon, which was titled, It's Time to Grow Up, uh, we looked intently at the topic of spiritual maturity and how most Christians are stuck in spiritual infancy or childhood. The writer challenged them and us to move beyond the mere basics of Christianity and press on to full maturity in Christ. Now, once again, this sermon passage is a lengthy one. We're going to take it in manageable chunks. Um, I decided to take the last two verses from last week and begin with them as they help us transition into our passage today. Also, if you remember a few weeks back, uh, the writer said that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Remember that? All right. Well, today he returns to Melchizedek in a little more detail, as I promised you he would. The writer is helping us to understand a truth that is central to you maturing as a Christian. He lifts our eyes to the wonderful reality that Jesus Christ is a sure and secure refuge. And we are therefore to attach or anchor our lives to him. And when our lives are anchored securely to Christ, we live with great faithfulness and confidence. We are no longer tossed about on, on the seas of life's circumstances. And we begin to see the world through an entirely different lens, the lens of the gospel. And we need this. Is it not true that all of us at various times and to varying degrees believe that God is unable or unwilling or to act decisively on our behalf. During some trial, we find ourselves saying, where are you, God? God, do you not care? The writer to the Hebrews shows us that God is there for his people in ways that look too good to be true. Now, how many of us here need to hear this? Our passage makes this simple yet poignant point. We must find our refuge in Christ Jesus, for he alone is our greatest hope. We'll look at that under three headings, the promise, the prophecy, and the perfection. First, the promise, and here's where we'll open up our Bibles. We're going to be at chapter 6 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 11, going through verse 20. So remember, this is from last week. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And here we go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an, an oath is, a, is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word for us. We heard your gentle but strong rebuke last week that we need to grow up in maturity. We're thankful now you turned to the solid food of the gospel to feed us. Oh, that we would receive it well. May it nourish us. May it transform us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Has anyone ever promised you something big? You longed for it, but in the end, they never came through? Not so, God. Why are we to believe that the promises of God are safe and secure, as our text says? Well, verse 18 says there are two unchangeable realities. What are they? One, God gives us his oath, right? And two, it is impossible for God to lie, right? God cannot swear to take you to Disney World and then fail to deliver. Because by God's very nature, he is pure and good. And he cannot not deliver on any of his promises. He just cannot do it. So what has he promised? Now, it's something, if you've been to Disney World, I've been there. Yeah. Um, as good as Disney, there's some thumbs up. You just got to avoid all those electric scooters everywhere you go, man. It's just crazy. Uh, and they get the first place in line. How's that happen? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, you can buy those tickets to go to first class. But you think of this promise to Disney World, it's a big one, but God's promises are, are huge. Listen, the promise of God is that he, he is judging all that is wrong, and he's renewing all things, and one day Christ will return to usher in glorious perfection. Let that sink in. That is God's promise. And here we are trying to find fulfillment and joy in like some mundane thing. When God has this, it's in store for us. And if you belong to Christ, you will experience this coming glory. Listen, Jesus didn't die just to forgive your sins, as great as that is. That isn't his end goal. His end goal is, of course, to bring his Father glory by fixing and restoring all things that sin has damaged. Listen, your salvation is just a means to God's greater end, which is nothing short of a universe-wide restoration of the entire cosmos and having a people as his very own. And listen, when this promise is finally fulfilled for you, nothing on earth, no experience, no joy, no success that you could ever experience in this world will even come close to what you will experience when God brings this about. God promises to do this. And if you belong to Christ, this future grace is yours now. You simply lay hold of it by faith and live in patience. And that's what our writer calls us to do in verse 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, remember, instead of sluggishness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith uh, and patience inherit the promises. The Christian life is a life of faith and patience. That comes, why? Because we believe the promises of God and we've placed our highest hope in them. 
which is why the writer points us to someone we can look to, um, who's waited patiently and obtained, Abraham, verse uh, 15. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, for those of you who know Abraham's story, he wasn't all that patient, right? Like you and me, he vacillated from faithfulness to doubts back to faithfulness, which is why it is such a relief to know that God's promises towards us ultimately rest not in our faithfulness, but in God. And yet in the end, Abraham matured into someone who is able to hold fast to the promises of God and love God and live with great faithfulness. So there's hope for us. The writer wants us to see that God has given us an even better promise than Abraham. See, you and I know what Abraham in his wildest dreams would be hard-pressed to imagine. Yes, Abraham knew that God would somehow provide a, a a substitute for his son, and God did provide a ram in the bush instead of Isaac. But I doubt that Abraham would have ever imagined that God would one day send his own son as a substitute and a sacrifice for Abraham's sins, Isaac's sins, and the sins of the whole world. I don't think Abraham really would have connected those dots. The author is helping us to see the magnitude of God's promise to us. That very Jesus who died has risen for us and is right now where? At this very moment, he's in the place we cannot yet be, but one day will be in the place of glory and honor and paradise and perfection for all eternity. He is in the place of perfect peace that our souls most long for. Now, the writer has given us an image to ponder. In verse 20, he says that Jesus has gone ahead as a forerunner on our behalf. No, it's not the Toyota. My, my wife just got a used one last year. It's not that forerunner. Something's far more spectacular. Have you ever had a friend arrive early at a show in order to save you a really good seat so you had a great seat when you got there? That's the picture here. Jesus, our forerunner, has not left us behind, for he has gone ahead for you. That's the picture. And remember Jesus' words before his death. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And where has he gone? Our text says at the end of verse 19 that he, that he is our hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. How does the writer describe Jesus? He says he is our hope that has entered. Our hope isn't a thing. It's a person. He, our hope, has entered the place we don't belong, but now somehow we do. The inner place behind the curtain, a place of perfect holiness and joy and delight and peace and happiness. God is a very happy God. And what does it mean for us here right now that Jesus is our forerunner? Verse 19 states that because he's doing this, we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Now, pause and think through the literary context of this passage. That is, what was it that preceded it? How does it fit in the overall letter? 
Last week, you recall, we took a little detour. The, the writer was trying to speak these deep gospel truths that are solid food, and then he's like, ah, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, hold on. I need to challenge you to grow up. You're a bit spiritually immature. I would like to feed you solid food, but spiritually speaking, you can only take baby's bottles worth of the gospel. He wants to feed them. He wants to talk with them about serious, life-transforming Christian realities. And so he ended the passage last week saying, but I believe you guys got it in you. Press on to maturity and, and come to be people who feed on solid food. And now what is he doing? He's feeding them solid food, right? He's coming back to that. That's the context. Which tells us what? That this truth that Jesus Christ is our forerunner and our great high priest, that he is our refuge, that he is our steadfast anchor for the soul, this is the solid food that mature Christians don't just understand, but feed upon daily. We keep coming back to this truth and finding it to be so satisfying, and it changes us. Christians, do you feed daily upon the solid food of the gospel? This gospel that says Jesus Christ is your perfect advocate in heaven. He's gone ahead to secure for you all the glorious promises of God for his people. He went ahead to reserve that. He alone must be the refuge and steadfast anchor for your soul. Listen, everything else will fail you. For the younger people here, everything else in life will fail you. Your hopes and dreams will come to let you down. But not Jesus Christ. He will always be your anchor. People in this world have many false hopes. They attach their lives to what? Things like careers and relationships, financial security. But not so the Christian. We have a hope, and it's not a thing. It is a person. A person. The writer says, our hope has entered the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone where no one was ever able to go, into the very glorious presence of our good and worthy God, God who knows all, God who holds all things sovereignly in his hands, a God who is so full of love and joy and happiness that it overflows even into this fallen world that you and I experience. Listen, if you've ever experienced happiness or, or love or excitement or ecstasy, please know this. It has as its source God. And let this truth challenge you as well. The best most exhilarating experience you could ever hope to have is what? Going to Disney World? No. Turks and Caicos? No. Having a million followers on TikTok? No. Listen, the greatest experience you could ever have is to one day be in God's presence in perfect peace, to soak in God's glory, to marvel at his majesty and his grace towards you and me. You know, this past Friday was warm and sunny. Okay, it was 55 and sunny. But as I walked outside and stood in the warm rays, I closed my eyes, I inhaled the 
fresh air. I felt the warm rays of the sun. I listened to the happy birds chirping at my bird feeder, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, right? Now, I know this might be hard for us to imagine, but where Jesus is right now, if you were there, it would make every warm, fuzzy, ah moment you've ever had somehow appear fraudulent. Jesus has oneness for you. All we do is receive it by faith, and then we walk in this grace. And we become people who just rejoice in this truth, no matter what circumstances come our way. And we come to lo love God more and more. And as this presses into our lives, guess what? We, our love for Christ changes. We love him more and more. We trust him. And we flee to him more and more. We anchor to him more and more. He becomes the anchor for your soul. Because of this, he is the one to whom you fled for refuge, right? That's the promise, not for the prophecy. All right, remember a few sermons back, Melchizedek's name came up. Um, if you don't know how to spell his name, don't worry. For some reason, um, spell checker gets it right, so that's always good. The writer quoted Psalm 110, a psalm where King David prophesies, uh, uh, prophesies uh, of, a, of a forever pre priest to come. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer has quoted this last week, and now he quotes it again at the end of our verse, the same passage. And then in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7, the, the writer causes this aha moment for his readers. He wants them to think, oh, now that prophecy makes sense. That Psalm 110 always just kind of didn't quite understand it. The writer says that you need to see how amazing Melchizedek was so that you can see how utterly awesome and, and truly amazing Jesus is. There are things about Melchizedek that help us to see more clearly the glory of Jesus. So, all right, once again, uh, in our Bibles, chapter 7, 1 through 10. But in our time, we're going to focus mostly on verses 1 through 3. So here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to Abraham, uh, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of, his, of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In, in, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lived. One might even say that Levi himself 
who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. All right, I'm not going to explain that verse, but anyway. First, a quick reminder of the Melchizedek story. God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his offspring, and his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. This is quite a promise for someone who's 75 years old and married uh, to his wife, who is barren. <laughs> uh, now, Abraham's nephew, Lot, if you remember the story, he was living with his family in, uh, in Sodom, not the place you would really want to make a home. And Sodom was attacked by rival kings, and many were captured, including Lot and his entire household. Abraham went to rescue Lot, and God brought about Abraham's success. Then the sinful king of Sodom wanted to bless Abraham, and Abraham said, Then along comes Melchizedek. In Genesis 14:18, this passage tells us that Melchizedek is both, both priest of God Most High and the king of Salem, which is what our writer tells us as well. Melchizedek led Abraham in a worship service. He broke bread and poured out wine, and he blessed Abraham. And then Abraham gave the first tithe that's ever recorded in Scripture. Now, two quick points from our text. Who is Melchizedek, and where did he come from, and what does this all mean? That's actually three things, but anyway. Uh, Melchizedek, our writer helps us understand Melchizedek is a compound Hebrew word, melech, meaning king, and zedekah, meaning righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. He is also king of Salem. Salem is what? It's another name for the city of Jerusalem. Salem is the Hebrew of the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And not just a peace where there's an end of conflict, but a peace that involves universal flourish of all people. We long for that day. Melchizedek is both king of righteousness and king of peace. If this is true of him, the writer is saying, how much more so is Jesus Christ our king of righteousness and king of peace? And where did Melchizedek come from? Whatever became of him. If you read the entire Old Testament, you find Melchizedek mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, where he disappears as quickly as he appeared. And of course, we see him in Psalm 118, where David wrote roughly 500 years later. The writer in our text says in verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, he isn't saying that Melchizedek didn't have parents, or never had children. He was a king, after all. His crown was given to him by birthright and was likely passed on to his offspring. No, the writer is simply highlighting the truth that, that in the Bible, he appears as a living man out of nowhere, as this king of Salem, priest of God Most High, and then he just disappears. The last phrase in verse 3 says, but resembling the Son of God. See, we're to look to Melchizedek. 
in order to see characteristics of God's own son. He continues a priest forever. The writer wants us to know that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the one, the son of God behind the curtain in heaven. And he's there as our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the son of God, is God. He, the eternal son, he had no beginning. And as the one who's resurrected from the dead, he has no end. And as such, he is our true king of righteousness and true king of peace. In other words, he fulfills the prophecy. Jesus, our beloved king of righteousness, our king of peace, is that for us? Oh, that we would yield more and more to his lordship over our lives. You know, the more mature you become, the more our lives are anchored to Christ, the king of righteousness, anchored to him and live for his kingdom. So we studied the promise and the prophecy. Now for the perfection. Our English word perfect can be found at the beginning and in the middle and at the end of the next section we're about ready to read. The Greek word is telos. Telos isn't limited in the sense of perfection, in the sense of like quality. That's usually how we look, think about perfect, as in she's a perfect candidate for the job. No, the Greek word telos typically com- com- conveys more of a sense of completion. Have in mind a puzzle or a painting. A puzzle has reached perfection when the last piece is put in place. A, a painting has reached perfection, completion, when the brush is laid to rest. In Christ, God has, God, God has put all the puzzlehood pieces of the priesthood of God in their proper place. In Christ, God has put to rest his palette and brush. Another word we encounter is the word better. It's all throughout Hebrews. In fact, the word better in this letter to the Hebrews is used more in Hebrews than all of the rest of the New Testament combined. The priesthood of Jesus is better, far better. In fact, it's the best. So we must draw near to God through him and him alone. All right, now let's read verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Great question. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was a descendant from Judah, right? Descendants of Judah couldn't be priests. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, ancestry, but by the power, listen, of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, 
For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to Christ. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, listen, he is able to save to the uttermost those who what? Draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I know that's a lot. But here, here we go. Once again, there's a lot we can cover. We're going to focus on two things. The priesthood of Jesus is perfect for two reasons. His priesthood is permanent and it is powerful. Notice the P's. Okay. When God, through Moses, gave his law, he instituted a priesthood. It's the priesthood of Aaron. It belonged to all who were born under the family lineage of Levi. It's called the Levitical priesthood. But what we're reading here is that this priesthood was not given on a permanent basis. God had something planned for his Old Testament Israel. See, perfection could not come through that system. It wasn't the final piece of God's puzzle. So the writer makes this argument. If God could have brought about our full and complete salvation through those Levitical priests, then what further need would there been for, for sending his son? Now, the problem with the Levitical priesthood are many. We'll cover some more in chapters to come. But one reason, seen in our text, is that all these Levitical priests, what happens to them? They die. Verse 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Every generation was responsible for raising up priests to serve faithfully only to die off. But we read in verse 20, God has sworn and will not change his mind. He will not change his mind. Jesus is a high priest forever. The second problem with the Levitical priesthood is this. Uh, priests were sinners too. Verse 27 tells us that even the holiest of high priests had to do what? Offer daily sacrifices first for his own sins before he could intercede on behalf of the sins of the people. But not so Jesus. Verse 27 says he had no need 
like the other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, since he did this once and for all. Once and for all. With the word once and for all, the writer points us where? To the cross. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, is also the high priest who offers up himself, unblemished, the sinless Lamb. God sent his only Son to do the work that no sin-stained priest ever could do. Listen, all priests ever born uh, were tainted with the sin of that first man, Adam, and therefore they could never be a perfect mediator. But not so God's son. Look at what verse 26 says about him. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heaven. So the priesthood of Jesus is perfect because it's permanent. We also see that the priesthood is perfect because it is powerful. Verse 16, chapter 7, tells us that Jesus didn't become our high priest by legal wrangling. Jesus isn't our high priest because he was born in the line of Aaron. And so simply it was his turn in line. No. What is it the writer is saying about Jesus? What's his basis for being your high priest? I like what it says in our passage. Did you hear that where it says, by the power of an indestructible life? I mean, I never in my own mind would have ever thought of a phrase like that, right? You know? But there it is in Scripture. By the power of an indestructible life, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, he died, yes. His body laid in a tomb, yes. But on the third day, he arose in power. Jesus won the victory over mortality and corruption. Therefore, by that same power, he is now He's beyond the reach of mortality and corruption. Every other priest entered the grave, and they are there in the grave now, awaiting the coming resurrection from the dead. But not so Christ. His powerful resurrection is the power by which all of God's promises towards his people will come true. And so the Christian experiences this amazing truth. The one to whom we draw near is. Christ is. Not just was, but is. He is risen. You know, that first Easter morning when the women went to the tomb, Luke tells us that they were perplexed when they found the stone had been rolled away. Their heads were downcast. But then along came two angels and spoke these words. Why are you seeking the living among the dead. Jesus has his eternal priesthood by the power of his indestructible life. Is your life indestructible? Care probably answer that. On the one hand, no. Our lives are not indestructible. Our lives are frail. We're just one car wreck away from experiencing our destructibility. Oh, I'm sorry about that line last week that we're, we don't know what our last meal is ever. Anyway, uh, but then again, ponder this. If you're in Christ, 
you are indestructible. Your life is now hidden in Christ. Because he has risen in the power of an indestructible life, so too you. If Christ is your hope, then this is God's promise to you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes of our indestructible new bodies that are to come at the end of the age. It's in chapter 15. I encourage every Christian to read that regularly. But here's just one part of it. Paul writes, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, we've seen this, this morning that we must find our refuge in Christ Jesus, for he alone is our greatest hope. You know, this past week, unless you've been living under a rock, you've known that the NCAA men's basketball tournament has kicked off. How many of you guys, have, girls, have filled out brackets? A few of you? There we go. All right. Sometimes I fill out more than one just so I can do better, hopefully. I went on the CBS Bracket website this morning just to check. There's over 5 million people who filled out brackets. At this early stage in the tournament, not one has gotten all the picks right. None. Last week, my bracket got so beaten up, I despaired. I vowed never to watch basketball again as my team lost by 30 points. But it was just a day. But isn't that how life is? When you're young, you fill out your life brackets with glee longing to watch the events unfold with victory after victory as you move your way, only to find that in many of the matchups of life, we've blown it. That college didn't accept you. That first career didn't turn out to be what you thought it would be. How in the world did I end up in sales? I was in sales, by the way. My friends, if you feel frail, if life tends to overwhelm you, if you struggle with anxiety, if you find that your idols in life have been letting you down, if you're tiring of experiencing persecution for Christ's sake, then this solid food of the gospel points you to take refuge in Christ. Remember who Jesus is. Remember who he is right now in glory. You will one day be like him. And where he is, you will one day be. And knowing this, 
and anchoring our lives to this changes everything. Oh, maybe not our circumstance. But it will change how we live with joy and peace and hopefulness no matter our circumstances. God has given us this promise to bring it all about. Jesus fulfills the prophecy as our forever high priest. And his intercession is perfect. He is God's puzzle piece that completes God's glorious plan for us. And so let us find our refuge in Christ Jesus. Let us anchor our souls to him, for he alone is our greatest hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, one, we're thankful that you are patient with your children because we, oh, so often, we try placing our hope in all kinds of other places, and you watch us. <laughs> you know what's right for us. You give us your word, which points us in the right direction. You've given us everything we need in Christ Jesus, and yet we're so prone to wanting to set our eyes on things on earth, to anchor our lives, to good things, but not ultimate things. We're thankful for this passage and how it points us to our forerunner who has gone ahead, who has saved a seat for us. And all that he is, and everywhere that he is, we will be and experience ourselves. Oh, that we would long for this. Change us in this very hour, we pray. Amen.